Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series looking at the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and this would be episode IX, Augustan Rome. With me as always is Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. In our last podcast, we looked at the rise of the Emperor Augustus and how he defeated his rival Mark Antony. We now enter a time in Rome when there's relative peace throughout the empire, something the people of Rome hadn't seen for a long time. He's not going out and fighting battles himself at this point. He's not even really pretending to, but he is someone who cultivates that reputation for building the empire. In, in fact, he pretty much just consolidates the empire. Is he doing this through Agrippa? Agrippa is around for a while, I think until 12 BCE, but it's more his stepson Tiberius, who he start, who's going to be the next emperor actually, who he starts sending out, say, to fight in Germany and areas like that, where the Romans are never really fully successful, but Tiberius, you know, has some successes there. He has effectively conquered Egypt, he's created that as a province, and that's a major coup and also a huge amount of wealth comes with that, which is really good for Augustus because now he can start using that wealth to please the people and build things. But he doesn't actually extend the empire much more than that. It is much more about keeping the status quo. And one of the great coups he has in terms of diplomacy is that he gets back from the Parthians. The Parthians are kind of in the area we call the Middle East. They're really the great remaining power that the Romans haven't managed to conquer. The Parthians had had some Roman standards since 53 BCE when Crassus had gone there and had a huge military defeat that was just shocking and shameful to the Romans. And Augustus managed to get the standards back and he kind of portrayed it as a military victory. Usually that's how you would go about getting a standard yeah. back, isn't it? Yeah, but he, he did it really through diplomacy. Yeah. So there's no conquest of the Parthians going on there. But there's a famous statue of Augustus called Augustus of the Prima Porta, which displays him in military garb. It's the most famous statue of Augustus. And by military garb for the Romans, I mean he's wearing a little little leather skirt. Yeah. It sounds kinky, but it's not. And a breastplate. <laughs> yeah. And the breastplate on these statues is often the bit that's very highly decorated. And in the middle of this breastplate, he's got a Roman soldier who's often thought to be Tiberius but it's not entirely clear, being handed back the standards by a Parthian. He's clearly a Parthian because he's wearing kind of barbarian clothes. He's not wearing proper Roman military clothing or a toga or anything like that. He's wearing sort of baggy trousers. And he's handing back the standards. So this is on a statue of Augustus as a military man representing what he's pretending is this military victory. But again, it's all about the presentation, really. He presents it as this military coup. And that's the way that people think of it. So during a lengthy reign with a relative amount of peace, especially in Rome, what changes happen that we directly attribute to influence from Augustus? He spent a lot of money on Rome. He spent a lot of money on the people and the army, but he spent a lot of money on the buildings of Rome and the infrastructure. A lot of Egypt's money on Rome? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Money that he had... Well, he inherited a lot from Julius Caesar, but of course Caesar had got that by conquering Gaul largely. And he also had his own income from all of the places that he had conquered on his way up. So he's got lots of money to spend and he doesn't 
wasted on himself. He spends it on keeping the people happy and making Rome a really dignified center of empire because there actually had been lots of anxieties and, and voices raised about how Rome just didn't look like the kind of city that was head of a, a world empire. So Suetonius claims that he said that he had found Rome made of brick and left it made of marble. So that kind of reflects the change in appearance. In his epitaph, it's a very long epitaph, he tells us all the buildings he built, big list of them. Mm. My students love to translate this because it is just a list. And all the buildings he renovated. He's quite explicit about the fact that he doesn't hold grudges here because one of the big buildings that he renovated was the theatre of Pompey. And of course, Pompey had been the civil war enemy of his father, Julius Caesar. So he doesn't just let that decay. He actually makes it look beautiful and new. And he also likes to tell us that he did that without putting his own name on it. He built some really magnificent buildings and there are actually, you know, poets write poems about things he builds, like the Temple of Apollo on the Palatine Hill, which is the most expensive and glamorous hill in Rome. And it's the one that's directly connected to his house. And it's massive shining and marble and gold, so gold leaf on the, the tops of the columns and that kind of thing. And that would have been facing out over the forum. So you go to the center of Rome, the, the marketplace of Rome, the political center, and you see this huge gleaming temple on top of the hill looking down on you. He built, of course, a temple for his father who had been deified. So the temple of divine Julius Caesar, which is right in the middle of the forum opposite the speaker's platform. Just in case I forget. <laughs> he renovates and builds lots of temples. Mm. And this, in, in fact, is not just a let's show off lots of money and let's make Rome look glamorous. This is also an indication of his kind of religious revival because he paints himself very much as a religious and pious man someone who's kind of bringing back religious duty and practice to Rome. So as part of that, he's bringing back various religious ceremonies that might have fallen out of use, uh, sacrifices, uh, feast days, that kind of thing. So it, it's not just a, a showing off buildings kind of process. It's actually part of his ideology, I suppose. But he also builds entertainment buildings. So there's a theatre. It's the Theatre of Marcellus. This is actually a theatre that Julius Caesar had started planning and had bought the land for it. It's called the Theatre of Marcellus because Marcellus was Augustus's nephew and he was the first person that Augustus kind of set up as his successor, but Marcellus died very young. So it's a kind of commemoration to Marcellus, but at the same time, like a lot of other buildings that bear the names of members of his family, it's a permanent way of remembering part of the Augustan family, part of the Julian dynasty. So he has a portico made for his sister, portico of Octavia, portico for his wife, Livia, uh, lots of these buildings, which are very beautiful and glamorous, named after members of his family. But I think perhaps the most glamorous, and it's not just a building, it's a whole complex that he has made, is a forum, the Forum of Augustus. So that's got his name on it. That's finished in 2 BC, and it's adjacent to the Forum of Julius Caesar. So he's kind of doing things along the lines that his adopted father had. So you've got the Roman Forum, you've got the Forum of Julius Caesar, which is very glamorous, and then the Forum of Augustus, which is much more glamorous and bigger. 
and it's got a massive temple of Mars in it. So this is an indication of another thing that's important to him, and that is war. And it's not just a temple of Mars, it's a temple of Mars the Avenger. There are actually various theories as to what Augustus is commemorating here. Is he commemorating the fact that he avenged Julius Caesar? I think that's quite a good bet, but it actually gets finished 40 years after he's avenged Caesar. Or that he's avenged Rome in all of the wars that he's won, and defeating people like Cleopatra. Or he's avenged Rome's kind of dignity by getting back the Parthian standards. Whatever it is, and it's not clear to us, Again, he's making that connection with military and victory and, and kind of standing up for Rome, I suppose. It sounds like a lot of his building projects were all about, uh, I almost want to say, good brand management. Mm. So he's so he's managing his own image. He's very much promoting his family and those important to him as well so that everybody knows that these people are important. But in the case of the last one, very much sending a message about himself exactly what we don't know, but the message that don't yeah. mess with him. Absolutely. It's an amazing complex and you can still go see it today. It's been, it was excavated by Mussolini and the Temple of Mars is massive. Mm. He had to buy up some really expensive land to build this. And he also built a huge firewall. The wall's still there to block out fire, obviously, but also block out some of the poorer suburbs of Rome because you don't want to be looking at them when you're looking <laughs> at this gorgeous forum. And he has in the middle of it a huge statue of himself in a four-horse chariot, which is called a quadriga. And underneath is a sign that says Pater Patriae, which means father of the country. All of these building projects then, are these all about Augustus or is that too unkind? Is it also about making Rome a better place? Well, it makes Rome much, much more beautiful. But was that just a, a, a positive by-effect? I think they're entirely tied up with each other. Mm. The fact is that he is giving to the Romans this sense of self, sense of dignity. He's very kind of pro-Roman patriotism and he wants it to be visible. Like, for example, he was very annoyed that not enough men were wearing the toga in public. So he passed a law saying that all Roman male citizens had to wear the toga in public. Things like that never work. But, you know, you can tell he's concerned about appearance and that everything should appear dignified and Roman and correct. But as you say, he's calling these buildings after himself and members of his family. He gets both effects. He gets people saying, oh, you know, isn't this a beautiful city we live in now, much more beautiful than it used to be. But they can't really look at any of those buildings without seeing Augustus all over the place. So what was it like to live in Rome in that point? Uh, it sounds like he was a, a bit restrictive with how you could live and the sort of things that you could do if he's dictating that men should wear togas. So what sort of regime was it to live under? Well, he did provide lots of entertainments, as I've already said, and it, it's not just that he gave them theatres. He also, you know, he put money on for shows and gladiatorial shows and things like that. But it's not really a coincidence that he got the title father of the country eventually because he did sort of interfere in people's private lives. He passed legislation which gave the state, i.e. Augustus basically, the power to declare certain acts that we would think of as private acts as criminal acts. The big famous example is adultery. Adultery is made a crime. 
and it's very, very specific. I won't go into all the nuances of this, but basically it's a law to keep women, married women, chaste. You can still be prosecuted if you're a man, but only if you have an affair with a married woman. So it's all about married women and legitimacy. And the law says that if a woman is caught in adultery, two things can happen. If her father catches her in her own house, he can kill her and kill the man she's with. If her husband knows about it, then he has to prosecute her for adultery. And if he successfully prosecutes her, then she and her lover can be exiled to separate islands and they lose a huge proportion of their property. If the husband doesn't prosecute her and it becomes known that she's adulterous, then he can be prosecuted as a pimp because he knew that his wife was not keeping her chastity, but he, he just decided to allow it. Why bring in these rules? What's behind this restriction? Well, Augustus presents this as a way of going back to old-fashioned values. And he's not the only one who feels like this. There is a general kind of Roman discourse, a feeling that things were better, people were more moral in the old days. They think that part of the reason that they lost control of themselves and the civil war happened is not the reason that it really happened, which is that there were all these men vying for power, but that the Romans are no longer as moral and upright as they used to be. They got too extravagant, they've got this huge empire, they've got too much money, or at least some of them have, and you know they've sort of declined into this decadence. So it's a kind of populist measure in a way, certainly amongst some circles, to say we're going back to old-fashioned values. Mm. These laws never existed for the Romans of Augustus's time in antiquity. But I guess the idea is they didn't need them back then because people were more moral. And now Romans can't be trusted. Yeah. Were there any other examples then? Well, I guess the law on adultery is sort of the stick method, but he also had the carrot in terms of giving people tax breaks if they got married and particularly giving benefits to women who had three children or more. They got more power. Uh, so, so, so a baby bonus. <laughs> yeah, but it was an early form of a baby bonus. That certainly would have applied to some women because Roman women, if they survived childbirth, would often give birth to you know a big lot families. more than three children. Yeah. yeah, big families were not unknown. If you did that, then as a married woman, you actually, this is what the carrot was, that you were no longer under the control of your husband or your father. You could make a will and leave money to who you wanted. You could do what you wanted with your money, with your dowry, whatever. So you were in your own power, wow. as the Romans thought of it. That's the incentive to do that. Whether it actually encouraged women to have more children, we don't really know. But what we know about the adultery law is that it was probably very unsuccessful. It's very hard to get people to prosecute something that's a private matter. Mm. We don't know of any cases of prosecution except that Augustus had to prosecute his daughter, who was kind of infamous for adultery, and his granddaughter. They're the only two cases we know about. So yeah. the ultimate irony is he brings in this law to clean up morals and instantly he has to prosecute his daughter. Lead by example. Yeah. I mean, I suppose you could say, well, at least he did it. He wasn't a hypocrite. But both of them were sent into exile and died in exile. It's actually quite sad. That's Dr. Rhiannon Evans, lecturer in Ancient Mediterranean Studies at La Trobe University. And you've been listening to Emperors of Rome, a podcast series which you can find on both iTunes and SoundCloud, where you can subscribe to it and please leave a review and tell your friends about it. 
You can follow both Rhiannon and myself on Twitter. She's at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, we reach the end of the rule of Augustus and look at how he approached the issues of legacy and succession. Until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.